It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is an Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice voice. of the U.S. Enhancing and protecting private wealth, Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is our country. Greetings and once again, welcome to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. I hope you're having a... uh, Happy Easter weekend, just before everybody and their brother goes on spring break. One of the disadvantages of not having children is spring break week is no different to me than any other week. So I'll be working and everybody else will be surfing or something. I don't know what they do. Anyway, been an interesting week this week. Uh, we started the week off with a Islamic terrorist attack in Brussels. And uh, I want to chat about that for just a little bit. You know, a lot of people are talking all around uh, all the different sides of that. I guess uh, about 34 people were killed, a couple hundred or so injured. The death toll will go up, I'm sure, as uh, I've seen reports on some of the injured being critically, critically wounded. And our hearts go out to those people and and those families. Uh, At least three of them uh, were American citizens. And Brussels, I I don't know if you're aware or not, but it's kind of like the Washington, D.C. of Europe. Uh, It's kind of a a political hub, if you will. There's a lot of world headquarters for major corporations there, uh, a lot of meetings for the European Union uh, leaders and, and that kind of stuff is there. So it's a, it's a very important political target. And uh, so the, the Muslims knew exactly what they were doing. The terrorists knew that uh, they were striking at a critical soft point. And... Already, uh, we're seeing some ripple effects uh, around the world in in our country. They're talking about more security at our airports, that kind of stuff. I guess what bothered me is, in addition to the savage attack, it bothered me the presidential candidate's response on both sides. Both sides. I'm not, not picking on one over the other. And, you know, our president's response. You know, our president was in Cuba during the time of the attack, and uh, 
He had a 38-minute speech of which he gave less than a minute to the attacks in uh, Brussels and uh, went on to a ball game and left the ball game and went on down to Argentina and uh, did the tango. So it's uh, and I and I think many people have commented on this already. So I don't need to elaborate too much on the optics of President Obama's response. But but before I get to that, let's talk about the presidential candidates. Everybody is using the terrorist attack in Brussels to further their campaign, if you will, and it, it, that wouldn't bother me even. That wouldn't bother me other than no matter what anybody, any candidate says, the opposite candidate says the opposite. Candidate comes out and says, well, we need to have stricter immigration laws. And uh, the other candidate, another candidate says, no, that's un-American. It's ineffective. It's uh, against our values, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, Cruz came out and said something about carpet bombing. Uh, the air, oh, no, no, we can't do carpet bombing. That's a loose cannon. It misfires. We're going to kill innocent people, that kind of stuff. Well, you know, I've lived my life by several tenets that I have written down. One of those tenets is the rules of engagement are determined by the enemy. And ISIS is our enemy. Radical Islam is our enemy. Terrorists are our enemy. They set the rules of engagement. And part of the reason they're so bold is they know that country, especially ours, or including ours, has the leadership to engage them on their terms. Now, I've dealt with bullies a lot in my life, and what I've found is the less you uh, uh, attack them back on their own terms, the bigger bully they're going to become and people are afraid of attacking because it will make them mad might might make them mad and they will increase their recruitment my response is good gives us more targets i mean you gotta attack a bully the way they attack us now am i suggesting that we make american soldiers suicide bombers not at all but the fact is, we kill them. And I, I, I just, I don't see any other way of dealing with a bully who hides among civilians, who's willing to kill themselves, uh, kill themselves if they're able to take a bunch of innocent people with them. And how do you fight an enemy like that? You can't other than you kill them. Now, President Obama's response, whole response reminded me of let him eat cake. I know he's trying to or he's rationalizing his response through moderation, not a knee-jerk reaction, that kind of stuff. But what is coming across as is nonchalance. Let him eat cake. He dances, first lady dances, they go to ball games with a dictator, not showing a lot of concern about what's happening over there at all. And ISIS took credit for it, as I knew they would. And they've already already came out and said that they either have or they're sending 400 
more ISIS terrorists into Europe. Well, how many do we have here? How many do we have here waiting for the time when they can blow something up? Blow up a mall, blow up a train station, subway, something. September 11, 2001, they attacked us here, killed 3,000 of our people, innocent people. And you remember Fahrenheit 9-11, put out by Michael Moore. That was in 2004. And uh, it was then that we saw the video of President Bush being told that we've been attacked on our own property. Remember that? He was reading a book to some children, I believe in Florida, and he finished the uh, time with the children. It was just a few minutes, and then excused himself and went out to his staff and immediately went back to Washington and, and started dealing with this. But in the movie Fahrenheit 9-11, put out by Michael Moore in 2004, he said in the movie, and I quote, You see, Bush is such an amateur, so indecisive, that he choked under pressure. He should have rushed to direct our defense against the terrorist attacks, but he'd rather read a book to some kids. Now, where is the response for going to a ball game? Uh dancing the tango where where's that response president bush didn't want to frighten the children at that moment he acted presidential and a few minutes later he excused himself from the children and took action it was only for a few minutes It wasn't until Friday that President Obama came back from his trip back to Washington. Now, where's the criticism there? There is none. Don't expect any. President Obama didn't surprise me at all with his reaction. Sadly, this is what I expect from the people that don't think America's great, that think that people bring these kind of attacks on themselves, that want to pacify and mollify these terrorists, these nutcases, doesn't surprise me at all. Disappoints me, but it doesn't surprise me. Now, that being said, up next, I want to talk about some recent polls that are out there uh, regarding Muslims in this country. I want to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court leading into my conversation with Dr. Matthew Spaulding. I caught up with uh, Dr. Spaulding at CPAC, and he's part of Hillsdale College and a constitutional scholar. So uh, uh, coming up a little bit later in the show uh, is my interview with uh, Matt Spaulding but coming up next might surprise you how many Muslims in this country feel we need to change some things in our legal system I'll talk about that next an economy of one 
with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. I saw a poll this week that, uh, uh, once again, wasn't surprising, but was very disturbing. Uh, There was a new poll put out by the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. Now, just the the name of that institute alone would, would kind of make me skip over the article, but I did read it. And what the poll shows was 10% of American Muslims think that their religion should be the main source, main source for American law. Another 27% of American Muslims believe that their religion should be a source of American law, but not the only source. 55% of American Muslims said that their religion should not be a source of American law. So 55% were definitively against the Muslim religion being a source of American law. That's the good news. The bad news is the other 45%. Where do they fall on on the subject? We know that 10% absolutely positively think that the Muslim religion should be the main source of our law. 27% thinks it should be part of it, so that means they want to pick and choose which laws they want to be part of our system. So that's 37%, and it could be as high as 45%, since only 55% feel their religion should have no part of American law. But uh, this poll was in general agreement uh, with a poll released by the Center for Security Policy in June of last year that showed 51% of American Muslims agreeing that Muslims in America should have the choice of being governed according to Sharia law. 51% felt that they should be have the choice of being governed by Sharia law. Now, right now, there's only about 3.3 million Muslims in the United States. I've seen some speculation recently that if the current trend continues by mid-century, 2050 or so, Muslims could be a majority in this country. Now, In one sense, that concerns me. In another sense, I'll probably be long dead. Uh, I'm not going to make another 34, 35 years um, at my age uh, to see that happen. But a lot can happen between now and then. And I think this adds to the the, uh, importance of the next Supreme Court nominee. As you know, President Obama put forth a nominee. And as you know, I'm sure the Senate, Mitch McConnell leading the Senate, said, uh, no way. No way. We're not going to vote on it. We're not going to have hearings. We're, we're not going to do anything. Now, both parties involved uh, have that right. 
And it's our own fault. It's the country's fault over the years of politicizing the Supreme Court. So it is political. And this has been going on for a long time. I mean, uh, President Obama, when he was a senator, filibustered a Supreme Court nominee. Joe Biden, I mean, we know that whole story about him chastising President Bush and warning President Bush about making a Supreme Court nominee in an election year. Been referred to as the Biden rule. Well, there is no rule on that. So when the president comes out, now you remember he was a constitutional uh, teacher, a teacher of constitutional law, I believe at Harvard. And he says, quote, the Constitution is pretty clear about the need for hearings on his pick. Well, that's, that's not true. He's playing politics. He's politicizing the action. Likewise, when Republican senators come out and say the Constitution is clear, they don't have to hold hearings if they don't want to. That's not the full truth either. The fact is the Constitution is silent. And when the Constitution is silent, politics reigns supreme. Now, we have politicized, as a nation, we have politicized the Supreme Court for decades. For decades. So it's our own fault that we have evolved to this point. For some of us that have been around a little while, the political partisan wars really, really became evident when uh, Robert Bork was uh, uh, nominated to the the high court. In fact, his name became a verb after then. Uh, it was known as borking or being borked. Okay, so we've put powers in the Supreme Court that the the original framers of the Constitution had no intention of doing, never imagined that the Supreme Court would have these kind of powers. So is it political? Absolutely. Should it be? Uh, It is what it is. We have created this animal, and now we get to to live with it. But it's going to be political from this point on. The Supreme Court is going to be political. That's the nature of the animal now. We've got nine justice seats. Eight of them are filled right now, so it's 4-4. Four, four. And uh, the the fifth one is, is critical. So coming up next, I'm going to speak with Dr. Matthew Spaulding. He's the Associate Vice President and Dean of Educational Programs for Hillsdale College in Washington, D.C., and a constitutional scholar. We're going to talk about... Uh, executive orders and politicizing the Supreme Court. We'll talk to him next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. 
We're speaking with Matthew Spaulding. He's the Associate Vice President and Dean of Educational Programs for Hillsdale College right here in Washington, D.C. Matthew, welcome to An Economy of One. Great to be with you this afternoon. I appreciate you taking the time uh, during CPAC while we're out here. Uh, I guess, you know, and I'm a little bit embarrassed. Uh, I didn't realize Hillsdale College had uh, uh, a program and, and location out here in Washington. We, we do. I mean, the college, of course, is in, is in Michigan, been there for right. a long time. Uh, we faced this question about five years ago. Um, how do we actually expand our footprint? Uh, you know, you can, building mm-hmm. more colleges is pretty darn expensive. Right. So we do a lot of online courses you might know about. Um, yep. Yep. Over a million students online. Um, we do a, we've got a bunch of charter schools we've opened all over the country. And then the third aspect of that uh, is we have a facility in Washington, D.C., right near Capitol Hill, where our own students go for classes, so I teach courses, but we also do a lot of programs for members of Congress and congressional staff and lectures and seminars, and we got a radio studio there, too. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'm, you know, my home base is just outside of Toledo, Ohio. I grew up in uh, Michigan, went to Adrian College, so uh, uh-huh. just down the road from uh, Hillsdale College, near and dear excellent. to to the show in our hearts and uh, always read in Primus and and uh, that kind of stuff. I want to talk to you a little bit. I have your book on on uh, the Constitution, the Heritage Guide to the Constitution, which I, I use as a reference all the time. Uh, but I want to talk to you a little bit about um, your, your book uh, or the, the thought process behind We Still Hold These Truths, Rediscovering Our Principles, Reclaiming our future, you know, it's uh, we talk to a lot of people here at CPAC, and and uh, um, it, 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 there, there's a lot of talk about uh, going back to our original values and and that kind of stuff. But I'm not seeing a lot of it in our our presidential candidates and right, in our politicians right. as a whole. I mean, talk to us a little bit about it, those it, it, original. At least moments. not right now. It doesn't seem like it does it. No, it doesn't. Uh, well, I mean, part of it is is to take a step back and look at this in, a, in, a, in the grander scheme of things. Um, if if our, the, the claim conservatives make is that the, the American founders uh, were right about certain core things, if, if they're right about those, which I believe they are, uh, then those things are, are, can be reclaimed. And, and I would put those into two buckets for you. Um, one is uh, constitutionalism. Right. What, what we're seeing right now, I think, is a debate over... Uh, well, first of all, it's a larger debate, I think, over the over a political party, which might be mm-hmm. falling apart in the, right before us. But it's essentially also a debate over the presidency, the role of the presidency, um, and why are we concerned about this 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 presidency? Well, it's because it's grown Im- immensely under progressive right. liberalism, right. Um, and so you got to think about how do you check it? Well, the founders had a solution to that, which was the separation of powers and checking checks and balances. Um, and I think that actually still works. And I would actually predict that regardless of who the next president is, Republican or Democrat, and Republican, you know, Donald Trump or not, is that you're going to probably see a Congress, uh, presumably still held in, especially a House still held in Republican hands, right. uh, assert more of its powers vis-a-vis the executive. So that's, see, that, that's actually a working solution, which I think can still play out. Uh, and the other thing, the other key here that, that um, oddly enough, I think Donald Trump himself is is uh, picking up on, or at least tapping into in, in his odd way, is human nature, 
mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, the, the founder's argument was that human nature doesn't change. It can't be changed. It's full of passions. It's, it's drawn to its passions, but it's also capable of doing great things. Um, but one key thing about it is that it does not like to be driven, right? right? This great Churchill quote, you can, uh, you can lead men, but they're hard to drive. <laughs> um, people rebel against that. And right. I think, you know, Trump has, is a, uh, in many ways, is a, is a product of this, this long-growing um, uh, driving force of, prog- of progressive liberalism, the, the administrative state, uh, and all the uh, anger and, and um, people being upset about that. And they want a more immediate solution. They've turned to someone like Donald Trump. But, yeah. but the, the sentiment behind it is a good sentiment. Um, yeah. We've got to figure out how this works and how this plays out without completely destroying it so you now get a, a permanent liberal <laughs> yeah. uh, state, right? Yeah. Can't right. answer that right now, but we'll see. You know, it's it's been interesting to watch, and it seems like, as with many bad things in life, uh, the longer it goes, the faster it gets worse. And it, it seems like in recent years that Congress and, and the presidency uh, has gotten more blatant, more unapologetic about overstepping their bounds. I mean, we've seen tons and tons of executive orders that that the general public is very clear that, that we don't agree with. My understanding is you recently testified before a uh, task force on uh, executive overreach uh, talking about this very subject. Uh, no, that's right. Uh, the House uh, Judiciary Committee, which it, it, it's actually a perfect example of what I hope and I'm trying to push very hard, is that in the face of this of this modern executive, Congress reasserts itself. That that strikes mm-hmm. me as the key solution here. Uh, but you, but you're right. This has been coming for some time. Um, I would actually I would actually be be one of the first to argue that there is evidence we saw on this in the previous presidency and under George right. Bush. Right. It just right. this this modern imperial presidency really goes back, you know, you go back to Nixon to see it evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference I think is that what we're having right now is we we have a president in office who philosophically is in agreement with the administrative bureaucracy and it is also um, you know, let's face it, uh, he's he's a smart guy. He wants mm-hmm. to change things. And he's using those mechanisms which Congress has given him over the years through their through their delegations of powers. He's using those to his advantage, i.e., to achieve his political ends. Now, what, so, you said, so we, what we what we face now is a situation which, and this is why you got to think through who you know you want to put a Republican up. You want to make sure they understand this too. Um, the president can do a lot right now without Congress. Mm-hmm. And now he can increasingly do things, and he seems to be getting away with doing things without even having law. Right. That's the problem we face. If, if that becomes the norm, we got a real problem. Well, and I, I think that's why some of us have uh, become uh, ultra-sensitive about um, Supreme Court justice nominations. Um, yep. It seems to me like the Supreme Court has become more of a legislative body than than a, gov- uh, a judicial uh, body in, in how they're uh, viewed. Because, I mean, the simple fact is uh, 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 people are saying, mainstream media is saying, oh, well, geez, now the, the court is now 4-4. Well, why, why should that make a difference? I mean, they're, 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 they've become a political body versus, you know, interpreting the Constitution and, 
and judicial review and and that kind of stuff. Um, how critical how critical is that the Supreme Court in the thought process of checks and balances and these executive orders uh, it, it's, and going it's, forward? It, it's absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial. I mean, the, the rule. What's the great accomplishment of, of the American founding? It's the rule of law. Right. Right. Yeah. And it and it comes out in different ways. The judiciary is, is a key component of that, but the the rule of lawmakers and legislators in Congress is is, is crucial as well. Uh, but the courts are are are, are key. And the, but the thing to keep in mind here is, I think we've got to the point where we're not we're not merely talking about more or less conservative to liberal justices who have differing opinions. Um, we now have a debate between people who are constitutionalists. Despite their disagreements between you know a Scalia and Alito and a Thomas and a Roberts, right? right? But they're but they're within a constitutionalist camp, and and the kind of non-constitutionalists, right? That's we're not talking about a left-right you know balance here. We're talking about a constitution anti-constitution debate, uh, and that's right. So so you start thinking about this. The next president's going to have. You know uh, the current open seat and probably one or or two more Supreme Court seats. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's that's control of the Supreme Court for a generation. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's been. I mean this is the oldest Supreme Court we've ever had, or at least in recent history. And uh, it's been said the next president could pick three or four justices on on the court, and uh, that, that's important. Yeah. So so, so uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think it's important for conservatives. Despite all the the seeming divide and and within conservatism, uh, the the debate within the Republican Party, I think it's very important for them to to you know really keep in mind the bigger things afoot, uh, and how do we restore those things? So you know, uh, yes, we have the debate over over the presidency, very crucial because that person makes those appointments. Right? Uh, are they going to abide by the rule of law? Are they going to use executive orders? I mean, these are crucially important questions um but also you know you you raise the other question right you got to keep control of the the congress yeah Uh, yeah. we need to rebuild all three branches of government now you know that being said i mean uh, how optimistic are you that we can can get down that path are we too far too far gone economically i mean we got 20 trillion plus of debt we got all these future obligations we we, we've got, uh, you know, career politicians in Congress. I mean, I just spoke with uh, Kelly Ward, who's who's running against John McCain in Arizona. And, and my goodness, he's been there 34 years, and, and he's approaching 80 years old. I mean, mm-hmm. how optimistic are you that, that we can fix things uh, before we, 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 we lose the values, lose the... The greatness and and the principles that America was built on. Well, you, you know, um, I, I can kind of give you two two parts. I guess two sides sure. of the answer, right? I mean, sure. On the one hand, you, you know, you're absolutely right. We we are far down this path, um, and uh, there does come a point which I think a a, a nation can't recover. Right. Right. It, it is true that great civilizations come and go. Yeah, well, and, you know, I've spent a couple of days here at CPAC. You've been here. And I'm 59 years old, so I'm I'm uh, uh, right in the middle of the baby boomers. But it does encur- it is very encouraging to be here to see how many college students 
there are involved in CPAC and and the 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 good thinking and the the reasoning, the objective thought. I've got a lot of clients that their children have gone to Hillsdale College, and it's just reassuring to see that generation developing those principles, developing that thought process. And you know, Hill, Hillsdale College is an island out there, and I don't know what we do without you. But it's it's great to <laughs> well, see great to see the graduates and the, the alumni coming out of well, that so system. Look around, wandering the halls of CPAC. I've I've got uh, 200 students there. Wow, really? We, we brought 200 students from the main camps out to CPAC this year. That's terrific. That's encouraging. Well, we've been spending a little time with Dr. Matthew Spaulding. He's the Associate Vice President and Dean of Educational Programs for Hillsdale College right here in Washington, D.C. Uh, Matthew, I uh, really appreciate the time you were able to, to spend with us today. We talked to a lot of your, your colleagues at uh, Hillsdale, and I hope we can call you again and talk a little more. Coming up. You know, the Supreme Court isn't all bad. Once in a while, they have a good ruling. I'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, speaking of the importance of the Supreme Court, this was a uh, case that came out this week that reinforces that, uh, you know, just because the court ideologically is 4-4, four liberals and four conservatives, doesn't mean they don't necessarily have a good ruling. Now, this week, the court came out and ruled against a uh, Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court that... uh, prohibit a woman, filed charges against her for carrying a stun gun. And they said that electrical weapons weren't contemplated by the 18th century framers of the Second Amendment. Now, that's that's amateur night in the arena to say something like that. But anyway, the um, Supreme Court reminded the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court that in the case of District of Columbia versus Heller, it was recognized that the Second Amendment covers modern weapons as well. It specifically rejected arguments that gun rights were limited to weapons in use in the 1700s or that despite the Second Amendment's reference to a well-regulated militia, that it need not be connected to military use. Now, they will redo it, I'm sure, and the Supreme Court in Massachusetts will try to find another way of uh, harming this woman and trying to ban uh, additional weapons. But I I got to thinking about this. And what if we applied this to all of the the, uh, uh, amendments? The most important amendment is the First Amendment. That's why it's first, freedom of speech. But the framers of the Constitution never, never imagined radio, never imagined TV, and they certainly never imagined the Internet. But these people will fight to the death to get things classified, freedom of speech, everything from burning a flag to money, campaign contributions, to religious freedom of 
you know, once again, going back to the Muslims wanting to enforce their religious laws on all of us or have exceptions from our laws because of their religious laws. Um, it, it, to, to, to apply this to the Second Amendment and a stun gun, I mean, in the court's slapdown of Massachusetts, it said the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was either unable or unwilling to do what was necessary to protect this woman, so she was forced to protect herself. The safety of individuals should not be left to the mercy of state authorities who may be more concerned about disarming the people than about keeping them safe. Now, a couple things are important in that. One, I don't depend on the state or anybody to keep me and my family safe. I depend on me. It's the old, 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 it's not really a joke, the old statement, when seconds count, police are only minutes away. Now, what's interesting to this, it was an 8-0 decision. 8-0. All eight justices agreed. It was unanimous that the state of Massachusetts must recognize the precedence and the spirit of the precedent set by the United States Supreme Court in the case of the District of Columbia versus Heller. So, even a blind squirrel finds an acorn once in a while, they got one right. Good for them. In addition, um, State of Iowa. State of Iowa passed a law this week that approves the sale of suppressors for firearms. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar, suppressor is similar to a silencer. It suppresses the sound of firing a weapon. And for the longest time, still in in many states, it's illegal to have one. And you still have to get a federal permit to get one. But another victory, I would say, for the Second Amendment, for those of us that have a concealed carry, for those of us that want to carry, that want to own weapons. Now, speaking of that, I did go to a big gun show last week and exercised my Second Amendment rights, picked up a couple more guns. Yes, I have too many, but uh, too many is never enough uh, as far as I'm concerned. So, uh I'm happy with these rulings. I'm happy that the Supreme Court reminded the state of Massachusetts about its previous ruling on Heller. I'm happy that the state of Iowa has approved the sale of suppressors for firearms. Uh, It's beautiful. The act is called the Hearing Protection Act. (laughs) And it went through with big numbers. Uh, The Senate passed it 46 to 4 and the House 78 to 21. So those are veto-proof numbers if the governor decides not to sign it. Now, i got to believe the governor's going to sign it in Iowa. But we gotta got to hang on to these victories as we get them. And these are both big victories that uh, really no one is talking about uh, because much more fun covering Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and Ted Cruz and and Bernie Sanders and and all these people and and, uh, what they say. So uh, while the uh, press is covering the 
the uh, seemingly interesting fires, uh, we need to look at the rest of them. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.